Yeah, who's ready for the Word of God? Who's ready for tube steak boogie food truck? Okay, that was a test. I just wanted to see. Like, I wanted to make sure you weren't more excited about hot dogs than you were the Word of God. Awesome. So much excitement and joy in the house of the Lord today. Uh, hey, did you hear about the time I saved someone's life this summer? Oh, you didn't hear about that. Two people, actually. Two people that were in distress on the lake. Oh, you didn't see it in the paper. You know, a local pastor saves people, right? Well, it didn't really make it to the pastor. Before I get you thinking about too, uh, how heroic I am, let me give you some context. Uh, because I was kind of like partially involved uh, in this rescue. Uh, I was, you know, actually more like passively involved. Kind of reluctantly, actually, if I'm being honest. Here's the scene. Holly and I are on the beach, and uh, we've got our dog there. Well, I said our dog. It's not my dog. It's their dog. We have their dog on the beach. Like It's like growing on me, I guess, this puppy. I don't know. <laughs> we have the dog on the beach, and my, my son and his friend Andre, they're uh, fishing on Skaha Lake, just out at the mouth of the channel where it opens up into the lake. And, and they're out there fishing. The, it's the early summer. The water's high. It's flowing fast down the channel. And uh, these two grown men float by them on this big inner tube. And uh, they're calling out to the boys, help, get us some help, save us. And some of our boys come running to us and they say, hey, those guys over there on the tube, they, they, they're, they're asking us to call 911. And I said, okay, well, I kind of assessed the situation. And I was a little reluctant to get involved. You know, as I looked, I was like, well, they look safe to me. They're like sitting on a giant flotation device, right? Like, you know, they don't have life jackets on, but they're on an inner tube. And, and you know, as I, as they, by this time, they'd come to a stop. They were just kind of like 100 yards from shore, just kind of sitting there, just floating. It looked really peaceful and serene, you know? And as I was looking at them, I became a little critical of their efforts to like save themselves. I could see them on this giant inner tube and literally the one man, man's feet that were in the water just kind of doing this. I was like, I don't want to call 9-1 to like get off and swim already, right? That's what I'm thinking in my mind. But uh, I was thinking, if you've ever been down the channel, there's like multiple signs. Like I got to do it this year. I'm a newbie, so I had to do all the things this summer. Everybody was like, you're going to love summer in Penticton. So how many know I had to do all the things, right? And so I was on the channel. I saw there was sign after sign after sign telling you, get off before you get to the bridge. I noticed that. But these men must have blown by those signs. And here they are out in the middle of Skaha Lake. And so I went out and I said, hey, are you guys okay? And they yelled back, call 911. I was like, well, I don't know about you, but it's been ingrained in me that 911 is for emergencies only, right? Like you call, right? What, hello, 911, what's your emergency, right? What am I going to say? Like, uh, there's some guys on a tube in the lake just chilling, you know? Well, what am I going to say? Wow, what am I gonna, and, and like, and like, so like, I, I couldn't yell back, no, right, like, right, and I couldn't yell back, like, okay, and then not do it, right, because that wouldn't be right either, and so I was like, what should I do, and so I called the next best thing, I called like the police main number, and I was like, hey, it's not really an emergency, you know, how do you know what's an emergency to you, might not be an emergency to someone else, right, and so I was like, it's not, doesn't seem too emergency-like to me, but like, what do you think? She said, well, we'll send an officer down uh, to see and assess the situation. And, and, uh, and while the officer, just as he was arriving, a friend 
of these guys, who must have been further up the channel, uh, found out what had happened to them. And he came running down the sidewalk and, and they over the bridge, down the beach, and they into the water. And they, it was like Baywatch. Not that I've ever seen that, you know. <laughs> but I don't know why I just said that. I've never watched Baywatch. But anyways, they came running down and they like, swam out to the tube and they had pulled the, the tube and the men back to shore in a matter of, of minutes. And, and as these two men, and I kind of was looking at them and, you know, maybe they were a little older than I thought they were. I don't know. I was, you know, and as they, as they came back up the shore, they looked at me and said, hey, thanks so much. We really appreciate it. And I was like, oh yeah, it's like the least I could do, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, you know, now, contrast that to a couple years ago, I was at a church picnic, and I was at the picnic, and I was sitting with all my church family in our lawn chairs, and there was like a creek near where we were, and as I was sitting, eating barbecue, sitting in my lawn chair, out of the corner of my eye, I saw a little toddler on the bank of the river, and all I saw was like this little uh, child wearing nothing but a diaper fall off the creek bed and into the creek. And in this moment, I jumped up as fast as I could and I ran to that creek bed and as I scooped that little girl out of the water and held her, consoling her, I started looking around for where uh, her parents might be. I saw a group of people who weren't with our church picnic. They were just off a little bit and as I carried this soaking wet baby over to this group of people, it was easy to determine who the mom was because she was the one who jumped up seeing her soggy baby. Like, what has happened, you know? And in this moment, I was faced with this thing that... that stirred something in me to get involved. Like two similar situations, they're a little different, but both inviting my participation. You know, both of them, uh, you know, are calling me to get involved. The only difference between the two really is my sense of compulsion or my motivation to engage. This one I want to ask you, what motivates you? What gets you fired up? What gets you like stirred to get involved or compelled to make a difference? Do you have something in you that's like, this is the thing that really gets me going? You know, maybe it's to have compassion to help people in need. Maybe you're just one of those people, you're like, you know, people we call like a bleeding heart. You're like, I just love to help people. Maybe you've been some, through some things in your life and you've had to overcome some challenges, some obstacles, and you really have a heart of compassion to help people going through what you went through, right? And you want to help them. You want to encourage them along that they can get through what they're going through. Or maybe you're here and, and at one point in life, you were the person needing some assistance, but there was no one there for you at that time. And as you kind of made your way and figured out your way, you've been determined that you don't want anyone else to have to go through alone what you went through. And so you've been determined to be there for people on their journey. You know, it's one thing to offer assistance by making a phone call or jumping in to the creek in this moment to help rescue someone in need, right? But as we look at our world, we see these challenges around us, these obstacles that can seem insurmountable, Right? I remember on my, on, my, on my interview when I came and I got the meet and greet with all of you and, and someone stepped to the mic and said, Pastor, what are you going to do about homelessness in BC? Right? And I was like, wow, okay. <laughs> I'm not sure that I have the answer to that, right? There are some challenges that we face that just seem too big and too cumbersome to do anything about it. Maybe you, have you ever felt like, you know what, like someone really should do something about that? You know, something really needs to be done about this, but I don't think I'm the one. You know, it seems too impossible or daunting for me. You know, sometimes we look at 
helping others and we think, how can I even help someone else when it seems so difficult to even lead my own life? It's overwhelming at times to manage my own things. You know what? I will share with you that I'm a bit of an idealist. Sometimes I see the big picture and sometimes I see what I want to do or what I want to accomplish, what I think could be done. Uh, but sometimes it seems so paralyzing to look at the big picture. I've been, I've been known at times to, to get paralyzed in the moment because if I can't do the big thing or the perfect thing, then I do nothing, Right? What I've had to learn along the way as I've grown as a leader and as I've matured as a person is to ask myself not what's the perfect thing or what's the big thing I can do, but what is the one thing? What's the one imperfect thing that I could do today to help reach that goal? What's the one thing? Uh, Andy Stanley, he, he talks, he says this, he says, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. It's a good way of looking at it, isn't it? The Roman Emperor Hadrian uh, is, is credited with this statement, and, you'll, and I'll tell it to you in a minute, you'll know what it is, but, but Rome had been under attack, and some of the walls had been broken, and it was a daunting task to uh, the citizens to come and rebuild this wall. And so Hayden is famous for telling them not to look at the wall as the task, not to focus on the wall that had to be built, but to focus their task on laying a, one brick at a time, brick by brick brick. Big things are built one brick at a time. Brick by brick. That's how a city is built. Big, brick by brick is how we build the church. Brick by brick is how we build a life of faith. Brick by brick is how lives are changed. You know, that's the title of our new sermon series that we're kicking off today, Brick by Brick. I just want to, uh, I just have this, this compulsion in me. I just have this sense that God wants to do something new and fresh. It's like we did church last week and we did church the week before that, but we're calling this kickoff Sunday mainly because we just like to have an excuse to have a party, right? But we're kicking off some things. I feel in my spirit as though this is a new season, that God has something fresh that he wants to instill in the life of our church moving forward. And we're gonna be inspired through the leadership and life of Nehemiah, a man who built a life and built a city of hope brick by brick. Would you say that with me? Say brick by brick. And while you're doing that, you could turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter one. Nehemiah chapter one. We're going to the Old Testament today. It's in the Old Testament between Ezra and Esther. You'll find the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter one, verse one. These are the memoirs of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. I don't even know how you say that. Hakaliah. Well, that's how we'll say it. In the late autumn, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa. Hanani, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews had returned there from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. As we're going to be unpacking this book over the next few weeks, I, I think we need a little bit of context. Uh, we need a little bit of history. Any history buffs in the place? Any history people, right? Any history, like the opposite of a buff? I don't know what that is. You're just like groaning, like history, 
right? When we go places like a museum or like any of those like touristy places, I, I'm the guy that's like reading all the plaques. I got my face in the plaques and my family are the ones that are like, can we go already? You know, we've been here. And I'm like, no, no, like I, I, we were on vacation. We were at Pearl Harbor. I was taking pictures of all the plaques so that I could like go and read them later. That's a good, <laughs> good strategy. Nehemiah chapter one, verse one, we, we find the story in the New Testament. Now, if you're new to the Bible or if you read digital Bible all the time, I think about my kids often reading the Bible on their phone or digital. Sometimes it's hard to get the context or the big picture in the digital uh, Bible, but this is a little tutorial for you. The Bible is broken up into two parts. We have the Old Testament. It was mainly written in Hebrew. And the theme is that God choosing and working through the people of Israel. And then we have the New Testament, mainly written in Greek, uh, about Jesus and the church. So we have these book in two parts. And uh, the Old Testament is broken up into four groupings or four types of literature. The first one is the law. The first five books is the law. We call it the Pentateuch. And Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And this is really God's guidelines. This is God's foundation and expectation for how he wants to interact with Israel and humanity. Then we see the books of history, Joshua through Esther, 12 books of Israel's history, how God rules them, how they interact together, a lot of history there. We see the books of writing. Uh, This is Job through the Song of Solomon. We have books of wisdom and worship. We have books about philosophy, uh, some poetry, some love poetry in there, Uh, the books of writing, and then the book of the prophets, uh, concluding the Old Testament. And and then we have the major prophets and the minor prophets, and really doesn't have anything to do with how important they are. It's just about the length or the shortness of the books. And really, this is how God is rebuking and encouraging encouraging his people. And a lot of that is like, if you obey me, this is how it's going to go. But if you fall away from me, this is how it's going to go. And so a lot of this happening through the prophets. So here's the thing, to fully understand what's going on in the Old Testament, we got to understand the storyline, the plot line. You ever, have you ever watched a movie not realizing it was part of a series? Like, I think like, anyone's seen like a Marvel movie, but you don't watch all the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and you're like, I have no idea what is going on. Who are these characters? What is the storyline? What's the plot line? I, I don't want to bore you today, but here's the Old Testament in a nutshell. The Bible begins with creation, yeah, but then we have the patriarchs. The patriarchs are God's calling of Abraham and his children saying, I'm going to make a nation out of you. And from uh, Abraham's great-great-great-grandchildren, we have these 12 sons who form the 12 tribes of Israel. We see this in Genesis. We see how Israel gets swallowed up into Egypt. They become slaves and how God leads them in the Exodus. And so this is how God delivers them from slavery, leads them through the wilderness towards the promised land. We see the conquest. This is where, G, uh, where, where God leads Israel into this land that he's provided for them. They, they have to fight for it. They have to establish themselves. But this is the foundation of their nation. This is Judges through 1 Samuel, talking about how God leads his people through judges, through those who are, are wise and, and wisdom and, and dedicated to him. And then we come to the United Kingdom. Not Britain, but this is the 12 tribes of Israel. And together they band together and they say, you know what, God, this is all great how you lead us through like, the judges and the prophets, but we really want a king. 
We really want to be like everyone else around us. And so they plead with God to give him a king. And God says, well, it's not what I wanted for you, but okay. I wanted to be your king. I wanted to speak to you through the judges and the prophets, but you want a man to rule over you. And so you're going to experience what that's like. And so God gives them uh, Saul. It's interesting to know that the tribes are only united for three kings. Saul, and then David, and then Solomon. But then in the excesses of Solomon, the 10 northern tribes, they say, we don't like how this is going. Uh, we're out of here. We're going like, to do our own thing. So the divided kingdom comes where Israel, the 10 tribes of the north, uh, they band together. And then the two leftover tribes, Judah and Benjamin, to the south, uh, that's where Jerusalem is. And they form uh, the nation of Judah. So we have uh, the Israel, or the Jews, divided into two uh, nations at this point. Then we see this idea of this exile, where all God has been leading them. If you honor me, if you bless me, I will lead you and I will bless you. But what we see here is that they turn their backs on God, they turn to the ways of the people around them, the ways of the world, and they turn their backs, rejecting the ways of God, and God allows them to be taken and conquered uh, by the, the, he's almost like, you wanna be like the other nations here. You can be part of what they're doing. And so Israel to the north is uh, destroyed by the Assyrians in 722 BC. And then Judah, uh, they're kind of a little bit more faithful to God, but they themselves get conquered by Babylon around 600 BC. Well, Babylon is then taken over by Persia. And this is where we find ourselves today in this text right now, not like today, today, but today. And so Persia has been ruling the Jews, uh, the people of Judah for about 70 years. And then they say, you know what? You guys can go back to your homeland, go back to Jerusalem, go back and rebuild it. And, you know, we'll let you do that, uh, even though we're still going to rule over you. So this is kind of like the story of the Old Testament in a nutshell. How many of you are going like, ah, right? It's like it all goes together, right? I didn't realize that, right? Well, it brings us back to Nehemiah chapter 1. Verse 1 and 3, Nehemiah hasn't returned to Jerusalem. Given the fact that this is about 100 years after uh, the first people were released to go back, we can probably imagine that Nehemiah was born in captivity and born in Babylon, which was taken over by Persia. And so Nehemiah is in this place. He's actually got a really great job. That's a really prestigious job. We see here that he is the King Artaxerxes' uh, cupbearer. The cupbearer is more than a butler. The cupbearer would have had to have been handsome. Hmm, how many know the king likes to have handsome people around, right? You know, you make yourself look better by hanging out with people who really aren't as good looking as you are, right? But, but in this day, it's like the king, right? I don't know, that's just stupid. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> just cut that out of my... I tell you, you get preaching and you, some things are anointed of the Lord and some things are just like, I don't know, my imagination coming out. And, uh, and we see here that, that, that the cupbearer would have had to have been cultured, uh, would have had to have some uh, knowledge, would have been able to converse with the king, you know. The cupbearer's role was at every meal and at every snack time, they would be the ones who would partake of the king's food and, and drink before the king in case someone was trying to poison him. 
Uh, imagine that. What a great job that is, you know? You get to hang out with the king. You get to have free food. The only, like, you know, lots of job security. You know, the only real workplace safety hazard is that you might die as someone's trying to assassinate the king, right? And so it, it, Nehemiah finds himself in this place with access to the king on a daily basis. And I, you would imagine there would be some level of relationship, some level of uh, of of opportunity. And because of that, Nehemiah would have been a person of influence, a person with esteem. You want, you want to get to the king, you got to get to the people who are next to the king. And Nehemiah would have been one of those guys. How many know that your position positions you to be used by God? Your position positions you to be used by God. Well, you might be saying, well, I don't have a very uh, lofty position. It doesn't matter. How many know that it's always the right place and it's always the right time to be used by God? The position you're in has positioned you to be used by God. Doesn't matter if it's a lofty position, a powerful position, or whether it's a humble position, a serving position, you're always positioned perfectly to represent God. See, Nehemiah doesn't realize that yet. To him, this is just another day. This is just another mundane moment. How many love the mundane moments of your life, right? You get home from work, you're like, hey, how's your day? You're like, that's pretty insignificant, right? Pretty boring. Nothing, nothing to talk about, right? But how many of a mundane moment is always having the potential to become a miraculous moment, right? A mundane moment always has the potential to become a God moment. When my son was in a hockey school, the, the coach used to tell him all the time, you know, two rules. You know, keep your head up, keep your stick on the ice. Keep your head up and keep your stick on the ice because you never know when the pass is coming your way. As a kid, uh, the coach would constantly be saying, like, keep your head up, keep your stick on the ice. You never know when the pass is going. You gotta always be ready. How many know spiritually, we gotta keep our head up and our stick on the ice? We gotta be ready at all times for the mundane moments to become miraculous moments, right? Think about Moses. He's out with the sheep. Miraculous moment, God speaks to him and says, you know what, Moses? I wanna call you to lead my people out of Egypt. I didn't see that coming, right? I was just out with the sheep. Think about David, you know, they're like, hey, your mom wants you in the house. And he goes in the house, boom, anointed as the next king of Israel. You never know. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they're like tired. They've had a bad night of fishing, putting their stuff away. Jesus says, hey, boys, get your stuff out. I want to go fishing. Like, drop your nets on the other side. Miraculous moment, right? From nothing to like, our nets are so full. Like, the Bible says the boat's like sinking, and they have to call their friends to come and help them. And they thought that was the, the miracle. They were like, wow, this, could this day get any better? And then Jesus says, actually, I actually want to do something more. I actually want you to come and follow me. The mundane moment becomes a miraculous moment. How many know that we gotta look for the divine in the daily grind, right? We expect God to be like, ah, miraculous moment. No, the divine is in the daily grind. I, I was thinking this week, Pastor Lisa was sharing with me that she went to Dollarama. Ooh, Dollarama, right? It doesn't get more spiritual than Dollarama. And she's at Dollarama, and she's buying a bunch of stuff for kids' uh, ministry, and she's got her cart full of, like, really cool kid stuff. And someone's like, well, that's a lot of really cool kid stuff, you know? What's that for? She, oh, you know, I run the, the kids' program at Bethel Church, and, and just FYI, if you want to get involved with kids' ministry, like, you should sign up and do that. Yeah, that'd be a great place for you to serve. Just putting that out there. We need people in the nursery and the kids' ministry, you know? But she's like, I serve in kids' ministry. It's awesome. And she's like, oh, that's so great that you do that for the kids at your church. And they said, oh, no, no, no. 
We actually do it for the community. Our church is bigger than just our church kids. We are actually involved. We have a passion for the kids of our community, for the people of our community. And the lady at Dollarama said, wow, that's amazing. You know what I would love to do for you right now? She goes, I got a whole inventory of like cookies and like recipe, like, like baking mix. And um, it's gonna expire soon. She's like, it's still good to go, but like, I can't put it on the shelves because it's too old, or, like whatever. She's like, would you like to take all that cookie mix and use it for whatever you have at the church, all right? And Lisa's like, yes, yes, please, we will take that and put it to good use. But this divine moment came out of the daily grind, right? Going to Dollarama, divine moment. How many know that you always gotta have your head up and your stick on the ice, right? You gotta have your heart open and your spirit tuned to Jesus leading. Every morning, I wake up and I say, God, lead me, right? Every meeting I go into, I say, God, lead me. I never know how God is going to show up in the daily grind. And so Nehemiah, he's there, and his brothers and his friend have returned to Susa from Jerusalem. And, and Nehemiah, he's eager for this update. He wants to know, how are things going in the homeland? Like, it's been 100 years since we were allowed to go back there. And, and they give me a report. How are, how are things going? How's the rebuilding progress? Uh, you know, he's, he's picturing progress and, and picturing flourishing. And this is what verse 3 says. They said to me, things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. 100 years and the city is still in shambles. I don't know if you've ever got home from vacation, you went to your job and you were like, hey, I expected this project to be a little further along than it is, right? Maybe you got home and you're like, I thought the dishwasher was gonna be emptied and it's not, right? Right? Nehemiah, he's in this good place personally, right? He's like successful and secure and he's thinking elsewhere. Other people might, must be equally as blessed as I am and yet he's confronted with this bad news. Church, we're blessed. We're a blessed, Bethel Church is a blessed church. We are in a good place. We are growing. We have uh, young families joining us. We, our finances are good, you know? Not to say to like, keep giving, keep being generous. But remember last year we gave that report like we're in a tight place. We're in a good place. We're in a good place. We want to be in an even better place so that we can be a blessing to those around us. But we got to ask this question. What's going on outside our walls? What's going on outside, if we look and we hear the state of the church, what's going on to churches outside our walls? We, we hear this report, well, well, churches are in decline. People's spiritual lives is, is, are waning. Uh, we hear that, uh, that our culture is living with a loss of hope. I was struck by that reality this week as I had coffee with a young man who has no affiliation with our church. And as he sat across from me, he was telling me, you know, my wife and I, we used to want to have kids, but now we're reconsidering because we're fearful about their future. There's not really much hope left for the future. How many know there's two old sayings? The first one is this, what you don't know won't hurt you. And the second one is ignorance is bliss, right? They both operate under, they operate under this thought pattern of it's better not to know, right? It's better not to know. The fear is that with information comes obligation. It's better not to know. But Nehemiah's curiosity leads him to ask these questions and the answers to these questions become a source of concern for him. Things aren't going as well as he hoped. The city walls are down. The gates are burned. Every wall, every city of this time was fortified. 
Every, every city had walls. Walls were a significance for security and protection. They were a statement symbolizing the strength and autonomy of the city. Walls were a defense against attackers and oppressors and thieves. So a city without walls really left its inhabitants vulnerable. A city without walls left the inhabitants helpless and hopeless and living in fear. And this is a report that uh, Nehemiah has. And Nehemiah's burdened. Rather than thriving, the people are struggling. And these questions of curiosity lead to this concern, which really leads to this place of burden. In verse 4, it says, when I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned and fasted and prayed to the God of heaven. I want to talk to you about the blessing of a burden for a moment. So we usually think of a burden as something that we need to get rid of. Right? We bring our burdens, we lay them down at the feet. We sang that a moment ago. Bring your addictions, bring your pain, lay them at the feet of Jesus. But how many know that the Bible doesn't say that we actually get rid of a burden? Right? Well, if we think about having a full plate, right? If you're like, oh, I have a full plate, what do we think the answer to a full plate is? Right? Well, I gotta clear the plate. Right? I gotta get rid of it, all that stuff that's on my plate. If I could just clear that off, then I'd be happy. I have a neighbor, and I was talking to him the other day. He said, you know what, I've cleared my plate. I used to be so busy, now I've got nothing on my plate. And he's like, I am so bored. <laughs> so bored. I thought it was gonna be a blessing to have a, how many know we need something, we need purpose, and we can't just lay down our burdens, but the Bible says that we actually exchange our burdens. We don't leave our burdens at the cross and simply leave them there. The Bible says that we actually pick up the cross of Jesus. We actually lay down the burden of sin and the weight of heaviness. The Bible says that there is a weight, a burden uh, that brings death and brings destruction. But that doesn't mean that we live burdenless. We actually are supposed to take up the burden. In Matthew eleven thirty, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and carry heavy burdens. I will give you rest. That's where we get this idea, like cast your burdens before God. But then listen to what he says, Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Jesus wants to give you a burden. The goal of life isn't to be burdenless, but to carry the right burden. The, 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 the goal of life isn't to live purposeless, boring lives, but to have purpose and meaning that comes with the burden of the kingdom of God. Jesus says his burden is light. You know why? Because he's carrying all the weight. Have you ever like, helped someone move something and you're like, helping them carry it, but you're like, I, I feel like this is pretty light, right? I, I feel like you must have the heavy end, right? I remember with my kids, I used to try to teach them work ethic and I wanted them to get involved with what we were, the projects. I wanted them to have participation and you know, to feel like they were uh, a part of what we were doing. And so I would get them to help me carry things, right? But how I many know I'm doing all the lifting and they're just there for fun, right? And in some ways, that's what Jesus is doing. He's doing the heavy lifting, but he's saying this, I want you to be there with me. I want you to have the blessing of being a part of what I'm doing. I, I, I'll do the heavy lifting, but would you come and carry this with me? Come and be part of what I'm doing. Here's the thing, there's a burden that leads to death and destruction. That's the burden that Jesus says that we're supposed to lay down. But then there's a burden that he gives, and that burden comes with blessing. How do you know that blessing and burden are cousins, right? 
In the kingdom of God, you can't have a blessing without having a burden. But a burden always comes with a blessing. How many of you love the burden of your mortgage payment? Right? You don't, but who likes the blessing of having a house? Right? Who likes the burden of paying for gas every day? Right? But who loves the blessing of a car? Like, who loves the burden of kids? Someone this week, they're like, why do we do it? Why do we put up with all this from our kids? I'm like, because they're a blessing. When you go in there at night and they're sleeping, you're like, ah, just look at them. It's worth it all. It's worth it all. Every burden comes with a blessing. You know, when we come to God and we say, God, I want you to bless me, God's response is, are you ready for a burden? Ouch. <laughs> God, we say, God, I want your blessing. Jesus says, okay, let me give you a burden. Blessing always lies on the other side of a burden. The burden is this sense inside of us that there's something more that needs to happen, something, a purpose and meaning that God is calling us to. You know what the biggest blessing of a burden is? It's that it causes us to rely on God. If there's no burden, there's no need for God. But if there is a burden... You're on your knees in front of God, going, how can I carry this? How Help me, God, to work this out. I need you. And on his knees in prayer is the place Nehemiah finds himself. How do you handle the burden? Here in week one, we'll see that you gotta pray about it. Pray about the burden. In January, we went through this series called Prayer, Pray. And we looked at this acronym of, of P-R-A-Y, praise, repentance, asking, and yielding. If you weren't here for that, you can go back and watch it on our YouTube channel. But, but we see it laid out so clearly here. In verse five, G, uh, Nehemiah reminds himself that God is faithful. And is, he begins praying, God, I have this burden, but before I even get to that, I gotta remind myself of who you are. O oh Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands, listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people, Israel. The first thing he does with this burden is he goes to God. He says, God, I know who you are. I just need to remind myself in this moment of what you called me to. And then he repents. He confesses his own sin and his part in the situation. How many know sometimes if we're, not even, if we're not complicit in sin, that we can usually look at the situation and, and find areas of our lives where we have been complicit in the same things? Verse six, he says, I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. So he comes to God and prays. He comes to God in repentance. He confesses his part in the, the systemic issues. And, and even, you know, he's not putting himself above everyone else. He's saying, I, I too go there. And then he asks God. He says, God, would your will be done and will your promise be fulfilled? He says, please remember that you told your servant Moses, if you're unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. He asks God, reminds him of his promises, and then he yields. He doesn't say, God, would you just do something? Would you just send somebody? He, he, he says, God, would you give me favor and the opportunity and the ability to con contribute? Verse 11, he says, Lord, hear my prayer. 
Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it in his heart to be kind to me. Carrying a burden should drive us to the place of prayer. See, prayer is about more than an appeal. That's what we talked about in our series. We talked about it aligning our hearts to God's. Some burdens, God will say, you know what? Your role is to pray about that. Your, your role is to simply lean in and pray. Uh, but as we do that, we get this, this burden, and sometimes our burden becomes a calling. Sometimes it becomes a calling. Not all the time. We're not called to carry the burden and, and be called to everything, but when we come to prayer, we say, God, it's just something for me to lean into more. You know, we're really a blessed church, like I said, thriving and growing. We're coming on 100 years here really soon, a couple years to go, and I'm excited. I'm excited about reaching that milestone, right? How many of the 100 never looks so good, right? Right? We, I want to go across that milestone, not just limping as a church. I don't want to be limping across. We're going to like go into that 100 years. I want to go healthy and whole and full of vision, thankful for the 100 years that we've had, and excited about the 100 ahead, right? I, I want to be thankful. How many know that this church has been a burden for many in the past 100 years? Right? At some point, someone had a burden. Someone needs to do something. We need to start a church. Right? And some people are like, well, you know what? We need to pray about that. We need to give generously towards that. We need to go into our community and share the love and good news of Jesus. We need to have a presence in, the, in Penticton for the presence of Jesus. People have had a burden for this church for over 100 years, and we get to uh, uh, be a part of that today. Right? We get to celebrate uh, the outcome of their burden. Well, as we're looking at 100 years to come, we've been praying, we've been rebuilding our teams post-COVID, right? We've been saying, you know what, there's a lot to rebuild as we're kind of getting the, the church up and rolling again. And uh, our community engagement team have been thinking about how can we get involved in our community? What are some fresh things? And, and there's some big dreams and big visions, right? Like, Pastor Jerry, how are you going to solve homelessness? I don't know, right? But what I do know is brick by brick, we can make a difference. Life by life, we can make a difference. Moment by moment, we can make a difference. And so our community engagement team has uh, some ideas uh, about a ministry opportunity that they'd like to share with us today about how we can make a difference here in Penticton. So Pastor Holly is going to share that with us this morning. Amazing. Well, I know that God, uh, all through the history of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, God called his people to impact the world around them with the love of God and with the message of hope. And so that's really what, what our goal is, that God uh, has called us to say, how can I love here? How can I help here? And how can I serve here? And so as we think about building and investing into our community, we know that there's a growing need in our community. Since I got here uh, last December, last November, uh, I've been connecting with uh, organizations in our community, people that are caring and helping and serving, and with a team of community engagement we have been saying, God, where's the gap? Where are you calling Bethel Church to serve and to love and to care? And so we've decided that we uh, have seen such a great need and we want to be face-to-face -face with people. We want to be in a place where we are able to build relationship, to build hope, to build relationship, to share the love and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we know that there's a growing need of people in our community who are under-resourced 
resourced. And the last two and a half years have been difficult for many of us. Uh, but for those who are already struggling to make ends meet, they are faced with significant challenges. Uh, the cost of everything is rising. And so we are launching this fall a food pantry here right at Bethel. And our goal is to establish, to help people with a tangible need, but also to establish personal relationship with people in our community. That it's not just enough that we gather here on Sunday, that God has called us all to go. And so we want to go into our community and build relationship. We want to be the hands and feet of Jesus extended to families and to people who are at risk. And so we're going to provide additional food support uh, to those um, in our community that, um, that live and have an address in our community. And our goal is to help them in this difficult time. Uh, we're going to be starting our very first food pantry October 22nd. So once a month on the third Saturday of the month in the morning, we're going to be opening our doors to the community. And there's three ways that you can get involved right now. You can give time, you can give bottles, and you can give a food drive. And so we need team members. If you can give time, we need team members from shoppers to, uh, to people that can come and sort food and, and come maybe during the week or when we have our drop-off times, and you can help sort our food pantry. That would be a great thing. We'd love to. You could give time at our events. If you are somebody that wants to meet face-to-face -face and invest in people in our community, you could sign up to give time. You could give bottles, and this could be the easiest way that you could give out at our booth out here. Uh, we are uh, collecting bottles at the bottle return at station, so you can pick up some stickers for your bags of cans and bottles. And you could give money that way because we want to provide not only uh, pantry items, but we also want to provide some fresh things as well. So you could give bottles. And the third way you could give is you could give a food drive. And you might ask how you could do that. We have many uh, bags at the back, large paper bags. And I'm planning on delivering them to my street. I'm planning on getting about 50 bags and delivering them to my neighbors. There's a little tag on the bag. And I'm going to fill out when I'm planning to come and pick up the bags. So I'm hoping and praying that my neighbors will fill a bag and then they'll leave it on their porch and I'll drive around on Friday, September 30th and I'll fill my car with the bags and I will drive to the church and I will bring the bags here and drop them off. There's some drop-off times as well. And so we're hoping that not only you could help fill the food pantry, but actually we could be partnering with people in our community to get involved in what God is doing here. We just can't wait to get face-to-face -face with people who need Jesus. And that's what we feel like we need to do, that we need to get face-to-face -face with those who are in need, with those who are maybe in a systemic poverty situation. And we believe that God is not asking us to give a hand out but a hand up that as we build relationships that we would actually be able to build some teams around them uh, to to help them um, maybe work through some other issues in their life and so we really want to care and love for those in our community brick by brick one step at a time one person at a time uh, one bag of food at a time that God is calling us to be a part of something bigger than just right here, right now. Amen. Amen. It's amazing to be a part of something like that. And, uh, you know, this is a Nehemiah moment that we have, church.
as we ask for the report, what's going on outside our walls? This opportunity to love and to care and to serve. Would you stand with me this morning? And as we do, my heart, my prayer is that we would have a burden. That we have not a heavy burden, not that, that heavy burden that weighs us down, but that burden that God gives us, that there's something more that we could be a part of, that there's something he's called us to, a purpose for us to give our lives to, something that drives us to our knees in prayer, but something that we find God already doing the heavy lifting for and inviting us to be a part of. That's my prayer for you, that you would see the divine and the daily grind of your life this week, wherever God's positioned you. Whatever burden he's put on you, maybe it's a burden for your family, for your community. Maybe it's a burden to be involved here at the church or something at work. But I want us to have a purpose to launch into this new season that we'd be saying, God, I can't do it all. But brick by brick, we're gonna see the kingdom of God built here in our city, in our region. Amen? Lord God, I just pray for my friends this morning and I pray as we, as we celebrate this kickoff Sunday, God, I pray that this would be a spiritual moment. God, that there would be something birthed fresh in our body of our church today, God, that there would be something deposited in our spirit. We might not fully know how it's gonna grow or where it's gonna go, but I pray that there would be a seed planted in us today, a burden to be a part of what you want to do in us as individuals, in us as a church, and in our community. And God, let that become full bloom. Let, let this concern we have become a burden and our burden lead to calling, a calling that's bigger than us, calling us for your kingdom. In Jesus' name.